0: Today's scripture reading is taken from 1 Peter 5, verse 6 to 14. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on Him because He cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. This is the word of God. Thanks,
1: Ethan. Uh, but we're still in the series of hope, and uh, in the coming, in, in next next Sunday, we'll be looking at the book of Habakkuk, the minor prophet Habakkuk, for about three Sundays. Just continuing to think about this theme of hope and hearing what Habakkuk has to say about hope. Uh, if you haven't read Habakkuk, you might want to just get a head start and read. It's a short book, just three chapters, uh, good, good, good gripping stuff about uh, doubts and questions of God and, and how Habakkuk kind of wrestles with God in, in this to-and-fro uh, conversation with God. So really, really good gripping book to, to kind of get through. So we'll look at that from next Sunday. Uh, Let me pray for us and then we'll look at this word together. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you indeed for how you are speaking, God. And Father, we thank you that uh, you not only speak, but you have uh, sent your Son for us. And Father, we pray that as we come to your word, we pray that you would help us to see more clearly uh, the glory of Christ. Father, we pray that our hearts would be turned to him. Uh, Father, wherever we are, uh, whatever our circumstances, Father, we pray that you would work in us by your Spirit, give us hearts that are soft and open to your truth. Father, help us to respond to you with trust, with obedience. And Father, we pray that uh, you would grant us strength to continually set our hopes on you, on your Gospel, on the coming of Christ, so that whatever our circumstances, we would continue to live as your elect exiles in a difficult and broken world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. This Jesus said to show by what kind of death Peter was to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to Peter, follow me. Those are the familiar words from uh, the 21st chapter of John's Gospel. Uh, So Peter heard it directly from the Lord himself. He heard it straight from the Master that he would suffer and die for the sake of the Gospel, just like his Lord Jesus. And indeed, this did come to pass. Uh, According to Christian tradition, Peter was put to death for his faith by being nailed upside down to a cross. Uh, The story has it that Peter did not want to be crucified upright because he did not count it worthy to exactly imitate his Lord Jesus. So he asked to be crucified upside down instead. Uh, Church Father Origen wrote, Peter was crucified at Rome with his head downwards as he had desired to suffer. Peter literally followed Jesus to the cross. But while the world sees only a disgraceful death, the reality of Peter's crucifixion is more profound and significant. Peter's inverted crucifixion, his upside-down death, is a striking picture of the upside-down nature of the Christian life. Peter may have suffered abject humiliation and excruciating pain But this was also his entrance into eternal glory. I think that's the upside-down nature of the Christian life. So it's very fitting that we've been considering this letter written by a man who was prepared to go to the cross, literally, uh, in the footsteps of his master. Over the past 10 weeks, we've been looking at 1 Peter about the upside-down logic of the gospel. I think as we've worked our way through this letter that speaks so much about suffering for the sake of righteousness, we've heard about how the way up always comes by going down. If we die to ourselves, we will live with Christ. If we share in Christ's sufferings, we will also partake in his glory. Present trials pave the way for future glory. We are exiles who face rejection in this fallen world, but we belong, not to this world, but we belong to God, we are accepted by Him. We are His elect, chosen and precious, although in the eyes of this world we are nothing. And understanding the logic of the Gospel, this upside-down logic of the Gospel, helps us to live with hope even amid suffering. And As Peter brings his letter to a close, he sums up his purpose for writing. Right here in our passage, in verse 12, if you're looking for a good summary statement that encapsulates the message of 1 Peter, I think verse 12 is a good candidate for that. Peter says, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Right? So Peter has written to us, a letter about God's true grace and his purpose for writing is so that we as God's people may stand firm in God's true grace particularly in times that are difficult in times when we are called to suffer for righteousness sake and this is Peter's main exhortation to us and over the past 10 weeks we've been looking at this in more detail but just to sum it up Peter's main exhortation to us is that we know God's true grace and that we stand firm in God's true grace. So those are the two key points that I want to take us through this morning, uh, to know the true grace of God and to stand firm in the true grace of God. Just two points as we work our way through these closing verses of Peter's letter. So what is God's true grace? I put it to us that Peter is referring to all that he has written in his letter concerning what the gracious God has done for his people, what God has done for us in the past, what God is doing in and through us in the present, and what God will do for us in the future. So Peter's understanding of God's true grace is past, present, and future. The grace of God has come to us through Jesus, his son, who suffered before being glorified. So God's true grace has to do with what God has done for us in the past. Right? Jesus died. Jesus died. For unworthy sinners like us. We have all turned away from God. We have all sinned against our Creator. Yet in His amazing grace and kindness, God sent His beloved Son, Jesus, to save sinners like us. And at the cross, Jesus took on Himself the full measure of God's wrath and judgment against sin. And Jesus died in the place, as a substitute, in the place of unworthy sinners. Sinners like us, so that we... Can be forgiven and made right with God if we repent of our sins and put our faith in Christ alone. As Peter has mentioned several times in his letter, just recalling the work of Jesus in the past, Peter says in chapter 2, verse 24, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He's upside down, right? We, We die to ourselves. And We live, we truly live if we are willing to die to ourselves. And Peter says, by his wounds, by the wounds of Jesus, the suffering servant, you have been healed. And again in chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he, that he might bring us to God. So that's God's grace in the past having accomplished Salvation for his people through Jesus. And thanks to Jesus' death and resurrection, we can now, presently, live transformed lives. So Peter understands God's true grace as operative in the present as well. And indeed, Peter spends a lot of his letter elaborating on how God's true grace affects us now, in the present. In fact, this is the, the, the bulk of his letter, right? Just speaking about how God's true grace should transform the way God's people live now, in the present. So in the present, in Christ, we now have a new identity. We are elect exiles, chosen by God the Father, made holy by the Spirit and consecrated to obey the Son. Because we belong to Christ, the cornerstone, we become the living stones that make up God's true temple. Not a physical building, but the people of God, the the church, the people of God. As Peter says in 2 verse 9, as as an, an identity statement. We are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. And because we have a new identity, Peter says we also have a new purpose that we are accomplishing now for the glory of God. God has saved us for His fame to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvellous light. So Peter says you no longer live for yourselves but you live for the glory of the One who has saved you. You display His glory with your lives. Chapter 2, verse 9. So practically, this means that we are to be holy As God is holy, we have to reflect His character. And we have to live in a way that is distinct from the world because the world doesn't reflect God's character, but we live in a way that reflects what our Saviour is like. So we bear witness to Christ. We tell others how He is the reason for our hope. Not, Not our circumstances, not our resources, but Christ is the reason for the hope that is in us. So what does it look like to live distinct from this fallen world? As we've heard from the earlier chapters of 1 Peter, it involves submission. Maybe not the first word that comes to mind as we think about the Christian life, but submission. Peter says we are to submit to God by turning away from sin and walking in his ways. We submit to the government, to the earthly authorities that God has placed over us. If we do so, For the Lord's sake, we submit to our bosses. Again, maybe not the first thing that comes to mind when we think about the Christian life, but we submit to our earthly employers. Peter says to do your work well, even if they don't recognize it, even if they don't reward you, even if perhaps they even make life difficult for you. But you submit to them by doing your work well, for the Lord's sake. Peter says to the wives, submit to your own husbands that you might reflect the character of Christ to them and perhaps win them for the gospel, those who have unbelieving husbands. And he tells the husbands to show Christ to your wives. Love them, honour them. He says that to husbands. And he calls God's people to submit to faithful elders whom the chief shepherd has appointed to pastor us as we heard from uh, verses 1 to 5 last week. So living distinct from the fallen world involves submission. It also involves suffering. God's true grace means suffering for righteousness' sake. For example, in 2 verse 20, Peter says, If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing. It's a gracious thing to suffer while doing good. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter calls us to suffering because this is what it means to follow in the steps of Christ, who endured the cross before gaining the crown. And just as Jesus trusted his Heavenly Father, so we too, as we walk in Jesus' steps, are to entrust our souls to a faithful Creator while doing good, for verse 19. And Peter encourages us, he tells us we can be sure that God will finally vindicate us because Christ has already won the victory. He has risen from the dead, ascended into heaven. He has been exalted to God's right hand as Lord of all. Right? And that, that's God's true grace in the present. Right? Submission, suffering, trusting, and obeying. That that's what God's true grace looks like, worked out in the lives of his people in the present. Finally, God's true grace also refers to what God will do in the future. Peter also speaks of future grace and how that future grace sustains us in the present as we suffer for Jesus' sake. You know, Peter assures us that suffering is not the be-all and end-all of the Christian life. Why? Because King Jesus will return. He will return in glory and at that time we will share in the glory of our Lord and Saviour. Therefore we can have joy even in suffering because we shall rejoice when the glory of Christ is revealed. That's future grace. And knowledge of that future grace spurs us on in the present and encourages us to not lose heart, to not simply see our suffering as the end, but to see Christ at the end of our suffering. Nowadays, you know, it's quite popular to take cruises to nowhere, you know, you kind of start from the same point and you end at the same point, that's that's a cruise to nowhere. But I think Peter kind of tells us that the Christian life is not a cruise to nowhere. Nothing against cruises to nowhere, I mean, I'm sure they're enjoyable. But I think I think part of the attraction of travel is: Do you want to go somewhere? Right? You you want a destination, and Peter assures us in in, these, uh, in his letter about God's future grace that we do have a clear destination. The Christian life is not a cruise to nowhere. Life is not simply going around in circles and we end up where we began. We're not wandering aimlessly through this world's wilderness. But rather, Peter says, we are pilgrims with a purpose. We're pilgrims with direction. We're headed intentionally to our heavenly homeland. There is a clear end in sight. And that's what Peter tells us. There is future grace. And allow that destination to affect the way you walk now in the present. You have a map. Follow it. Because the end is certain. So we have a living hope because Jesus is alive. Peter says at the beginning of his letter, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. A living hope, not not one that is dead, but one is living because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So the fact that Christ is risen secures our hope. This hope is not founded on our performance This hope is not founded on our faithfulness per se, but this hope is founded on the victory of Christ, his resurrection from the dead. And Peter says, live in light of this hope, this living hope. And in Christ, we look forward to receiving an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And God himself guarantees this inheritance by guarding us, by his power, he will keep us safe until we arrive at our destination. And Peter says all that is God's true grace. So we've seen in this letter God's true grace, past, present, and future. You know, I've just summed up for us very quickly this, in a nutshell, the message of 1 Peter. So then in light of this, Peter says stand firm in the true grace of God. Stand firm in what God has done in the past, what he's doing now in the present, and what he will do in the future. So it brings us to the second point of our sermon. And in, these, in this point, we'll look more closely at these verses before us. So stand firm in the true grace of God. What does this look like? In verses 6 to 10 of our text, Peter gives us four commands, one encouragement and one promise. So we're going to look through those four commands, one encouragement and one promise. So the first command is in verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. So if you want to stand firm in God's true grace? Command number one, humble yourselves under God's mighty hand. We had to follow Jesus' example of humility. You know, he humbled himself under the hand of his Father. He laid aside his glory. He came as a suffering servant Uh, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life for sinners like us. So we are to walk in the steps of Jesus' humility, his trust in his heavenly Father. And notice how Peter mentions the mighty hand of God. that's, That's an unusual phrase in the New Testament, but it's quite a common phrase used in the Old Testament, right? The mighty hand of God. And this description of God is associated with the exodus, God's great act of redemption in the Old Testament when he rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt and brought them out to the Promised Land. You know, as Moses reminded the Israelites in Deuteronomy 5, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord brought you out from there with a mighty hand. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Do you notice what Peter is doing here? You know, he's mentioned how we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good, you know, 4 verse 19. And here in 5 verse 6, he talks about God as redeemer. So if you put those two verses together, essentially Peter is telling us our God is the all-powerful creator and redeemer. Right? He holds everything in his hands, the beginning and the new beginning, right? creation and new creation, He is the Creator and Redeemer. Therefore, we can humble ourselves under Him. We can trust Him because He is Creator and Redeemer. We can accept our difficulties and trials not as random accidents of blind fate, but we can accept our trials as a part of this Creator and Redeemer's plan, His wise and good plan for his people. In, in speaking of God as creator and redeemer, Peter is reminding us of how our God is in control. He's sovereign over creation. He is sovereign over redemption. He is working all things together for the good of his people to make us more like Jesus. Right? So this is Peter's encouragement to us. You know, yes, he's calling us to be humble, but this is encouragement to us. He's calling us not to lose heart. For our God is worthy of our complete trust and confidence. As, as Peter has said in, five, in verse 5, He gives grace to the humble. So why wouldn't we humble ourselves under Him if He gives grace to the humble? So we can wait patiently on the Lord. We can trust that His timing is good. As, as Peter says in verse 6, at the proper time. Who who decides what the proper time is? Not us, but our sovereign creator and redeemer. He has a plan. And at his appointed time, at the right time, according to his plan and determination, he will exalt us. So we can trust him. Even if this time of waiting may seem long, but we can trust him. We can submit. his plan and we can set our hope fully on christ we can rejoice in suffering for this is how god is refining and testing the genuineness of our faith he's preparing us for glory we can give ourselves over to him and indeed the command to be humble comes with encouragement if you look at verse 7 peter says right humble yourselves under god's mighty hand and then casting All our anxieties on God because He cares for us. So Peter says, This is how you humble yourselves under God's mighty hand, you cast your anxieties on Him. God is not only mighty and sovereign, but He is also a loving Father who invites us to lay our worries at His feet sometimes when we when we think about God as sovereign, we, we could misunderstand we could misunderstand God. we could think that yes God, you're sovereign, you're mighty, but you're very far away. you, know, you are aloof right? you you are distant from us, you are so great that you're far from us and you don't really draw near to us. Right? you're just cold and unfeeling, and you just work out your plans, and nothing can stop you so maybe that that could be. Uh, a way in which we could think of God's sovereignty, but, that, but Peter says that's not the right way to think about God's sovereignty. He, he goes on to say in verse 7 that this sovereign God is a God who is also very near. This sovereign God is a God who delights to draw near to His people. Why? Because He cares for His people. His, his sovereign plan is not arbitrary. His sovereign plan is not random. His sovereign plan is not fatalistic, but He works His plan because He cares. For his people, and therefore, Peter invites us to cast our anxieties on this God who cares for us, to lay our worries at his feet. that's, That's tremendously comforting. We have a God who's not only all powerful, but we also have a God who's all loving. An all powerful and all loving God surely is a God we can trust. You know, it's hard to live faithfully as elect exiles in a fallen world. Right? Jesus calls us to deny ourselves, to take up our cross. and To follow him, we must die to ourselves. And living as exiles will often mean forsaking the world's values and priorities. It means sticking out like a sore thumb because we don't conform to the ways of this world. And this will cost us our ease, you know, it will cost us our convenience, it will cost us our comfort. It may mean sacrificing our status in this life, it may mean sacrificing our success in this world, it may mean sacrificing familiar relationships, friendships, it may mean sacrificing our livelihoods. Uh, it may even mean sacrificing our lives as our brothers and sisters in some other countries experience day-to-day. Day. You know, the Christians that, to whom Peter wrote this letter grappled with this. Right? They, they lived in an environment where this kind, this kind of sacrifices was very real. They, they, they had to consider the cost of being a disciple of Christ. And you can imagine living in that kind of environment where these kinds of sacrifices were such a real thing that they, You can imagine that the fear, the worry, and the anxiety that grip their hearts. Right? The, 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 the worry that they might not have means for survival. The worry that they might lose loved ones and friends. The worry that they might even lose their lives for following Jesus. You can imagine the burden of anxiety that would be on them. know, I think we, we live... In God's mercy, we live in a country that is relatively good for Christians. Right? I think there's some measure of respectability uh, of being a Christian here still. And we, don't, we don't grapple with these fears in the same way that these readers of Peter's, the, the, the first readers of, of Peter's letter grappled with. But nonetheless, you know, do we grapple with fear, worry and anxiety as we pass through this world's wilderness? Peter reminds us that God will take care of us. We are his treasured possession. He will never leave us or forsake us. We've heard a lot about the cost of discipleship. Here, Peter gives us the comfort of discipleship. And the reason why we are willing to endure the cost of discipleship is because we know the comfort of discipleship. And notice also in these verses the connection between humility and casting our cares on God. Anxiety may be a symptom of pride. Our anxiety may stem from our self-dependence because we're trusting in ourselves rather than trusting God with our concerns. Now, this could be unusual for us to think about because we often associate pride with someone who is boastful. Right? Maybe someone who seems as if they have their lives together. Maybe we associate pride with being strong and self-confident and self-assured. But friends, pride can also manifest itself in worry. You know, in our arrogance, we think that we can fix our own lives. We, we think that we can solve our own problems. And then we get anxious because we realise we can't. We get anxious because we realise that our resources are actually quite limited. But then we don't know where to turn, right? so we get anxious. So are we anxious because we are trusting in ourselves, leaning on our own strength, trying to live day by day in our own limited wisdom and skill? Are we anxious because we're trying to cling on to this illusion of control, right? thinking that we can control our health thinking that we can control our financial standing, thinking we can control our careers, thinking we can control our children, thinking we can control our parents. Right. Are, are we anxious because we, we think that we have this semblance of control? And then when things happen, we become fearful because we realise we don't have control, that our lives are actually far less under our control than we realised. That's a symptom of pride. When worries arise, are we quick to turn to God in prayer? Is that an instinct? Do we we bring our requests to God when worries arise? Or or do we just internalise them and worry even more? I put it to us that prayerlessness may be a sign of pride. We don't ask God because we think we can get by on our own. I love the stanza from the familiar hymn, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. It says, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. Perhaps this is a bit of a comment on 1 Peter 5 verse 7. Perhaps we... Don't pray because we, we, we're proud and we don't cast our anxieties on God. And to be humble before God means to come to an end of ourselves, to see our need for God. And perhaps Peter is recalling Jesus' words from his Sermon on the Mount. When Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles... Seek after all these things. And your Heavenly Father knows. God cares for us. Our Heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God. Humble yourselves under God's mighty hands. Cast your anxieties on Him. Seek first His kingdom. Be willing to suffer for righteousness' sake. And all these things will be added to you. The second and third command that Peter gives are linked, so we look at them together. In verse 8, he says, Be sober minded, that's the second command, and then be watchful, that's the third command. So, to be sober minded means to be self controlled in all circumstances, good or bad. It means to think clearly about the time in which we live, understanding that we are to look forward to Christ's return. So the command to be sober-minded is often associated with the return of Christ. As Peter has mentioned in chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Future grace. Right? To be sober-minded is to set our hope on future grace. And he says in 4 verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Again, future grace. Therefore, be self controlled and sober minded for the sake of your prayers. The command to be watchful is related to this. Jesus often gives the command to be watchful. I think Peter is just picking up on what he's heard from Jesus while Jesus was on earth. Jesus would constantly encourage his disciples to watch and pray. To be alert and ready while they await his return. Again, it's future grace. For example, in Matthew 25, Jesus says, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. Then Matthew 26, Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So in these commands, right, be sober-minded, be watchful, I think Peter is reminding us that we live in between. We live in between the first and second coming of Christ. And we live in a fallen world, and we face spiritual dangers. So watch, be sober-minded, don't don't be drunk, but be clear-minded about the age in which you live. My wife and I lived in Washington, D.C. for about close to seven years, and then we lived in a neighbourhood that uh, I, I guess they called it uh, under gentrification, right? So it was a neighbourhood that was getting better, but there were some parts of the neighbourhood that were still pretty sketchy, right? So re- so regularly in our neighbourhood, we would hear uh, accounts of crime. You know, I was I was in this message group, like a crime watch kind of message group in our community, and you know, I, I would get postings of crimes that were that were happening in our community, and there were you know significant number of crime incidents of crime in our community. For example, uh, I, I used to drive with a, a steering wheel lock. I don't think any of us uses a steering wheel lock here in Singapore. You know, this physical lock where after you park your car, you lock the steering wheel to make it harder for someone to steal your car. Why? Because there were incidents of car thefts in our neighbourhood. Uh, some, sometimes even carjackings in our neighbourhood. You know, so every time we lived, you know, whenever we lived in a community like that, we, we had to be alert. To crime in, in the city. Right? It's just a part of living in the city in the states. So when we came back to Singapore, it was a bit of a culture shock. right? Because in Singapore, people, because people assume that there's no crime. Right? So much so that the, the police have to put up these banners that say low crime doesn't mean no crime. Right? It's so different because in D.C., you don't have to tell people that there's crime. People are on the lookout for it all the time. But in Singapore, Singaporeans have been reminded that Yes, we do have crime. Please look out. <laughs> and I think that's what Peter's doing here, right? He's he's sort of putting up this banner. This is when things are going well, don't think that you're safe, right? Because you live, we live in the midst of spiritual conflict. We we live in a spiritual war. Right? Just because life seems easy, life seems that's going well, doesn't mean that we are not in danger. If, if we are prepared to buy a steering wheel lock and to take precautions against crime, you know, how much more should we be sober-minded and watchful and to be ready to guard against spiritual complacency? You know, Peter says there is a war going on. We will face many dangers, toils and snares as we journey through the wilderness of this world. That's why Peter goes on to say in the second half of verse 8, Your adversary, the devil. Yes, we do have an enemy. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. What does that mean? Essentially, he's telling us that the devil desires to destroy our faith. That's what it means to be devoured by the devil. The devil seeks to destroy our faith. In tough times, he wants us to stop trusting Jesus. Right. When, when we suffer, the devil wants us to turn away from God in frustration, in disappointment, in anger, in bitterness, in resentment, in despair. Right. That, that's the kind of response to God that the devil seeks to draw us to. In good times, the devil wants us to forget God, to neglect him to assume that we are getting well getting on fine without him in good times the devil wants us to become self-sufficient and to stop depending on Christ the devil seeks us to assimil- the devil seeks to assimilate us back into the ways of the world so that we lose our distinctiveness as God's people he wants us to lose our witness as salt and light by tempting us to live and look just like the world Therefore, Peter says to us: Be alert to the deceitful schemes of the evil one. Don't carelessly coast through the Christian life, but be intentional about following Jesus. Don't assume on your spiritual health. Don't presume on the grace of God. But be intentional. Know Jesus. Know Him more and more. Trust Him. Be in His Word. Be in prayer. Uh, Refresh yourselves constantly in the Gospel. See your need continually for His grace and mercy. Don't assume that just because you said a prayer 10 years ago or you walked down the aisle 10 years ago that you're fine. You may not be. Don't assume, Peter says, but be intentional about your spiritual life. Follow Jesus. That's why Peter's fourth command is a call to action. Resist Him. Firm in your faith. Peter's talking about spiritual warfare here in verse 9. And you know, to borrow the words of the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6, right, Paul says there, put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. And Paul goes on to say, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. So that's what it means to resist the devil, right? Spiritual warfare is not some mystical black magic mumbo-jumbo thing, right? No, spiritual warfare is about standing fast in Christ. It's about taking on the truths of the gospel and living our lives daily, meaningfully, according to the truths of the gospel. Faith in Christ, trusting in His righteousness, holding fast to His word, reminding ourselves of the salvation that we have in Christ, allowing that to guard our minds, Right. That's essentially what it means to resist the devil. There's not, nothing mystical about it, right, but simply holding on to the gospel of Jesus Christ, living each day in humble dependence on the gospel, allowing the gospel to renew us daily, allowing the gospel to strengthen our hearts, to give us hope, allowing the gospel to change our lives so that we become more and more like Jesus. Beloved, that's how we resist the devil, firm in our faith, faith in Christ. You know, take heart, while the devil is a dangerous enemy, he is a defeated foe. Our Lord Jesus has already won the war by rising from the dead, ascending in glory and being exalted as king forever. As Peter has reminded us in 3 verse 22, Jesus has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities and powers, including Satan, having been subjected to him. And we can resist the devil because of what Christ has done. We stand in the victory of Christ. Not in our own resources, not in our own abilities or strength, but we stand in Christ's victory. That's why Peter says, resist him firm in your faith in your confidence in Jesus Christ. Not self-confidence, but confidence in Christ. He has defeated Satan's sin and death. Now, next Sunday is the 504th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. So it's very timely to remember the words of Reformer Martin Luther, Right, that very familiar hymn to us, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. In you know, one of the stanzas, Luther says exactly this about spiritual warfare. He says, Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing? Thus ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name from age to age the same, and he, not us, he must win the battle. Firm in your faith in Christ. And also be encouraged that you never walk alone. Welcome, Jimmy. Knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. That's what Peter says in verse 9. So even as we face sufferings, we don't suffer as isolated individuals, but Peter assures us. That when we suffer, we suffer as a part of God's people. We share in suffering together. And this solidarity strengthens us. Now, Peter says we can bear one another's burdens. We can weep with one another. It shows that we belong to the same spiritual family. And I think this helps us to understand verse 13 in our text. And Peter says, you know, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. What's, it's quite a strange statement. What does that, what does that mean? You know, she most likely refers to the church where Peter is writing from. Babylon is probably a figurative reference to Rome. Right? Because at that time, the literal Babylon was in ruins. Right? It was destroyed, never rebuilt. So Babylon was probably a bit of a sort of like a, a figurative reference to Rome. And the Jews associated Babylon with the exile. So by referring to Rome as Babylon, Peter is identifying with these Christians in Asia Minor. He's saying, like like you, we are also exiles. Yes, we live in Rome, but just like you, we are, like in Babylon, we we are an exile as well, together with you. So as elect exiles, we encourage one another. We, We write you this letter to encourage you. Because we are also fellow exiles. Although separated by geography, these churches in Rome and in Asia Minor, they encourage each other. I think it's a reminder to us that God's kingdom is far bigger than just one local church. God's kingdom is far, far bigger than just Grace Baptist Church. This is the reason why we pray for other churches in our services. It's a reminder to us that we're not in this alone. We pray for other churches because we want to acknowledge God's work in the gospel across this city, across the world. Therefore, we pray for churches like The Crossing, we pray for One Covenant Church, we pray for other faithful gospel-preaching churches because we are in this together. We do the work of the gospel together, we suffer together, we bear witness to Christ together, and we want their ministries to thrive because it's good for the gospel. It's not about who has a bigger pie in terms of numbers. No, it's about what is good for the gospel. Therefore, we pray for other churches. That's the kingdom of God. And I think this is exactly what the churches are doing here in First Peter. They are praying for and partnering with one another for the sake of the gospel. So we've heard Peter's four commands and one encouragement. So finally, we'll wrap up by looking at his promise. Verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. I think it's so encouraging that Peter wraps up his letter with this, with this verse. He's spoken a lot about suffering, but he reminds us in verse 10 that our suffering, our trials are temporary. This life is short. We are exiles and sojourners now, but we will one day arrive at our heavenly home. And in Christ, we have a living hope that will be gloriously fulfilled when our Lord Jesus returns. That's the good news, right? That's future grace, that we will not always live in hope. We will not always live by faith. Why? Because our faith and hope will turn to sight and will be consummated. So we will, we will not live with hope permanently because the, the day of hoping and trusting will be replaced by the day of seeing, face to face. Then we shall fully share in the glory of Christ. And compared to that vast, endless eternity with Jesus, Peter says our suffering in this present life it's only for a little while. You know, you've got to love that phrase, right? It's just for a little while. Just for a little while. And Peter wants us to have an eternal perspective on our brief earthly lives. This is what it means to live as pilgrims, to live with hope in Christ. And the God of all grace will unfailingly keep us for that happy day. God himself will restore us, he will make all things new in the new heavens and new earth and there will be no more tears, no more mourning, no more pain, no COVID, there will be no more sin and death. God will confirm us, enabling us to stand firm. He will strengthen us, making his power perfect in our weakness and he will establish us on the sure foundation of Christ the living cornerstone. Beloved, this is our hope, the God of all grace who secures our salvation. May we stand firm in His his true grace and His promise leads to our praise. To Him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Precious Father, we praise You, for You are worthy of our praise and adoration. Father, You are our Sovereign Creator, the One who fashioned the world out of nothing, and You are our Sovereign Redeemer, the One who spoke light out of darkness, the One who brought us out of darkness into Your marvellous light. You have rescued us from our slavery to sin to death and the evil one and you have delivered us and brought us into your glorious kingdom of light. Father, we thank you for your true grace, past, present, and future. And Father, we repent of our pride, Our we confess our arrogance that has kept us from casting our anxieties on you, that has kept us away from you and, uh, and made us trust in our own selves. Father, we confess our pride and we turn away from it and we turn to you afresh. We lay down our burdens at your feet, asking of you, seeking your grace and mercy. So Father, as we've heard from your word, your true grace, we pray that you would give us strength to stand firm in it, to hold fast to Jesus, to continue to live each day, not trusting in our own finite resources, but trusting in you, trusting in your Son, knowing more of him in our lives every day so that we might reflect his glory, so that we might bear witness to the hope that we have because of Christ. So Father, we pray that as your people, you would make us faithful and enable us to live in a way that brings you much glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.